Well, good morning. We are finding ourselves almost at the end of the book of Judges. Um, we only have two more weeks after today, um, which maybe many of you will be celebrating that we can get to Christmas or something slightly brighter. Um, but we've now turned a corner in the book of Judges, and we're really at the end. Um, at this point going forward, there's no more judges. There's no more deliverers. After the death of Samson, this is kind of done. There's not any saviors coming. We, our series has been called Flawed Heroes, and we've been looking at them. But going forward, there's not really any flawed heroes. There's not any heroes at all. There's really not any righteous people left. It is just a whole bunch of sin and darkness. And strangely, this morning, we're going to find a bunch of people who believe that they are following God. There's going to be a bunch of characters who profess faith in God. People who profess desiring to worship God, who maybe even profess that they want to be obedient to God. And yet, despite all of this profession, all of this talking about how they're great followers of God, all we find is a bunch of sin. That sounds a little familiar, doesn't it? But how does this happen? How do people who talk as if they are believers find themselves in a place with such great sinfulness? Well, I think the primary way that this happens is when we start to twist and ignore God's Word. When we start to believe that this book that He has given us and the, the words in it are just optional. Or if they're just nice suggestions, but we can do whatever we want. We start to believe that maybe we know better. This morning we're going to look at three characters. Uh, Micah a Levite, and the tribe of Dan in Judges 17 and 18. And what we're going to see as we look at each of these characters is we are going to see ways that they twist God's Word. Or at the very least, we're going to see things that motivate them to twist God's Word. And I think, or my suspicion is, we're going to find in ourselves some of these same problems, temptations, and desires. And so, if you would, if you would stand with me as we read God's Word, and we're going to read all of it all the way through, and one of the many reasons we do that is so that you can see that I'm not twisting it, because we're going to read it for yourself. In Judges 17, there was a man of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver's with me, I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate this silver to the Lord for my hand, for my son, to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah, and the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod, and household gods, and ordained one of his sons, who became his priest. For in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now there's a young man from Bethlehem in Judah, the family of Judah, who was a Levite, and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said, I'm a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to sojourn where I might find a place. And Micah said to him, stay with me, and be to me a father and a priest, and I'll give you ten pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and your living. And the Levite went in, and the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. 
And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. And then Micah said, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel. And in those days, the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So the tribe of Dan sent five able-bodied men from the whole number of their tribe from Zorah to Eshtaol to spy out the land and to explore it. And they said to them, go and explore the land. And they came to the hill country of Ephraim to the house of Micah and lodged there. And when they were by the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of a young Levite. And they turned aside and said to him, who brought you here? What are you doing in this place? What's your business here? And he said to them, well, this is how Micah dealt with me. He's hired me and I've become his priest. And they said to him, inquire of God, please, that we may know whether the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. And the priest said to them, go in peace. The journey that you go is under the eye of the Lord. And the five men departed and came to Laish and saw the people who were there and how they lived in security after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting, lacking nothing that's in the earth and possessing wealth. Now they were far from the Sidonians and had no dealings with anyone. And when they came to their brothers at Zorah and Ishtael, their brothers said to him, what do you report? And they said, arise and let us go against them, for we have seen the land and behold, it is very good. And will you do nothing? Do not be slow to go and to enter it and possess the land. For as soon as you go, you will come to an unsuspecting people. The land is spacious, for God has given it into your hands. A place where there is no lack of anything that is on the earth. So the 600 men of the tribe of Dan, armed with weapons of war, came out from Zorah and Eshtael, and they went up and encamped at Kiriath, Jerim, and Judah. And at this account, to this day, to this place, is called Mahena Dan, to this day. Behold, it is west of Kiriath, Jerim. And they passed on from the hill country of Ephraim and came to the house of Micah. And the five men who had gone out to scout the country from Laish said to their brothers, Do you not know in these houses there is an ephod, household gods, a carved image, and a metal image? Now therefore, consider what you will do. And they turned aside and came to the house of the young Levite at the house of Micah and asked about his welfare. And the 600 men of Danites armed with their weapons of war stood by the entrance of the gate. And the five men who had gone out to scout the land went up and entered and took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image while the priests stood by the entrance of the gate with 600 armed men with weapons of war. And when these people went into Micah's house and they took the carved image, the ephod, the household gods, and the metal image, the priest said to them, what are you doing? And they said to him, keep quiet, put your hand on your mouth and come with us. Is it better to be us a father and a priest? Isn't it better for you to be a priest to the house of one man or to be priest to a tribe and a clan of Israel? And the priest's heart was glad. And he took the ephod and the household gods and the carved image and went along with the people. And he turned and departed, putting the little ones and livestock and the goods in front of them. And when they had gone a distance from the home of Micah, the men who were in the houses near Micah's house were called out, and they overtook the people of Dan. And they shouted to the people of Dan, who turned around and said to Micah, What's the matter with you, that you come with such a company? And he said, You take my gods that I made, and the priest, and go away, and what have I left? How do you then ask me, What's the matter with you? And the people of Dan said to him, Do not your voice be heard amongst us, lest angry fellows fall upon you. And you lose your life with the lives of your household. And the people of Dan went their way. And when Micah saw that they were too strong for him, he turned and went back to his home. But the people of Dan took what Micah had made and the priests who belonged to him. And they came to Laish to a people quiet and unsuspecting. And struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. And there was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon and they had no dealings with anyone. 
It was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rehob. And they rebuilt the city and lived in it. And they named the city Dan. After the name of Dan, their ancestor was born in Israel. But the name of the city was Laish, the first. And the people of Dan set up the carved image for themselves. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, son of Moses, and his sons were priests until the tribe of Danites, until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made, and as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would um, come be here this morning. Uh, Lord, that you would illuminate your word. You would help us to see what you have to teach us. Um, Lord, teach us how to not twist your word, how to listen to all of it. Um, Lord, anything that comes out of my mouth that's just from me and not from you, would it just go in one ear and out the other? Because we want to hear from your voice and your word this morning. Pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. And you can be seated. So the first character we're going to look at is Micah. And so the first temptation or first way that we can twist God's word is, well, we want success without submission. Is we want success without submission. This is Micah's temptation. This is what Micah does. And let me kind of summarize the story from Micah's perspective. Because he bookends the narrative. He starts at chapter 17, right? It's really all about him. And then he kind of takes a backseat and disappears. But then he shows up again. And so right away he's introduced to us as somebody who steals from his mom. And he gives the money back, not really because he's sorry, but because she was going to curse him. And he hears about it. So his mother's so happy, she makes an idol out of silver. And Micah takes that, and then he makes even more idols and more images. And a traveling priest happens to wander by, and Micah tells him and convinces him to come work for him, and he pays him. And he's convinced that this is what's going to bring him success. But then the tribe of Dan comes by, and they take all of his idols, and they take his gods, and he goes up to try and get them back, realizes they're too strong, and he just kind of goes home empty-handed and sad. And that's the end of the story for Micah. That's his story. It's not really that great. I told you, there's not really any heroes here, and Micah's definitely not one. And his primary desire seems to be that he wants the success and the rewards that come from God. We see this in 17.13, where he ends it and says, Now I know the Lord will prosper me. Because that's what he wants. He wants to be prosperous. He wants to be successful. He wants all the rewards that God has to offer. And he thinks that he can get those without actually submitting to God. He thinks he can get the rewards and the success that comes from God without actually obeying that God. And we see this right away in his introduction. He shows up as a thief. He's stolen an obscene amount of money. It sounds familiar. It sounds kind of like the amount of money um, that Delilah had last week when we talked about her and Samson. And he turns it over and fesses it up. But we look at 17.2 and he said to his mother, The 1,100 pieces of silver were taken from you and you know, about which you uttered a curse. And you also spoke it in my ear. So I heard you say, you know, curse be whoever took that. And man, I don't want none of that. I don't want to be cursed. So here you go. Uh, have it back. That's him. That's not very repentant, is it? Does it sound very repentant? Especially God's word. It tells us that when you steal money and you return it, you're supposed to give more back. So to say with interest. Just to make a reparations for this. You're just going to make up for what you have done to show that you really are repentant. But he doesn't do any of that. He just doesn't want to be cursed. So here, take it back. And his mom responds so weirdly, 72, his mom says, Blessed be my son by the Lord. Which is really out of character. So here she's blessing somebody who's not actually repenting. Who's not actually sorry as well. And then in three, she says, I'll dedicate the silver to, you know, the Lord from my hand to my son. That, that's really good. Okay, sounds great. But then she keeps going. 
to make a carved image and a metal image. Not just one idol, but two idols. That's not a blessing to God. That's not good at all. God wants nothing to do with that. God explicitly says, don't make idols in my image or in anyone else's image. Right? Israel with Moses and the golden calf. It wasn't another God. They were thinking it was their God, but they made an image of it. This is not what God wants. And even then, she doesn't give all of the money. You notice she only gives 200 of it. So even kind of her sinfulness is half-hearted at best. But Micah believes that he can just play lip service to God, that he can kind of go through the motions without actually submitting to God. And it's ironic given his name because Micah's name means, who is like God? It's a question. Who is like God? Well, the answer is rhetorical. It should be no one. No one's like God. God's the only one. Who else could we ever worship other than God? That's what Micah's name means, and that's what his life should point to. Ironically, he has more idols than anyone else in the whole book of Judges that we find. 17.5, the man Micah made a shrine, so he made a special place he could go and set up and worship. Then he made an ephod, which sounds familiar. Gideon did that. Gideon just did that once. Micah's done even more. And his household gods... So then he has other gods separate from his shrine, separate from his ephod. And he ordains one of his sons who became a priest. There's a lot to unpack there. But this is not somebody at all who believes that nobody is like Yahweh. This is not somebody who believes that nobody is like the God of the Bible. In fact, he's got lots of gods like Yahweh. He's got a whole collection. I can only imagine if he had that many. He's probably got more than anyone else. Maybe he's inviting other people to come over and look and see them all. This is a lot of gods that aren't God. And his ordaining of the priest is especially wicked and wrong because he's not a priest. He shouldn't be ordaining anyone. People should only be ordained by other priests, especially the high priest. The only people who should be priests are Levites. So he is going through the motions kind of outwardly to look like he's obeying God, and yet he's not at all. But he's in luck because there happens to be a priest who wanders by who is a Levite. And so he convinces him to come stay with him. He, he pays him, right? Because he wants, he wants to look like he's doing things well. And this Levite agrees to come with him and then he ends and he ordains that Levite, which again, he shouldn't do. This guy should already be ordained anyway, but Micah wants him to be under his own authority. And then ends saying, now I know I'm going to prosper. Not just I'll prosper. God's going to prosper me because look, I'm going through the motions. I've got, I've got some things right. We see the consequences of his sin. He thinks that if he just worships God some, if he just gets the right priest, then things will be good. God's going to overlook all the other stuff. He doesn't actually have to submit all of his life to him. He can just submit, you know, part of it to him. And maybe part of it to some of these other gods, part of it to this ephod, part of this to other things. But all of this ends up getting him in trouble. All of these idols, all of these household gods, they all do what sin does. They betray him and they don't save him. They leave him. They, they get taken from him and he goes to try and fight, realizes that he doesn't have any strength. He can't do anything about it. His gods aren't going to help him. His priest isn't going to help him. And he just turns back sad and goes home. And that's it for him. And that's what sin always does to us. Our idols cannot save us. Our sin can't deliver us. And if we try and gain rewards from God and we never actually submit to Him, what's going to happen is we're going to end up like Micah at the end, disappointed and sad. In contrast to Micah, we have Jesus, who Jesus wasn't interested in the success of the world. Jesus was interested in submitting to God's Word and in submitting to God. 
which is also his, his own will. Jesus came, and when he was offered all of the things and offered money and offered stuff even from the devil who tried to say, here, I'll, I'll give you all, all the kingdoms of the world. They're yours. Just, you know, just compromise a little bit, and then you can have it. He says, no, I don't need to do that at all. Get behind me. And yet, too often, we're much more like Micah than Jesus, where instead of submitting to God wholeheartedly, we are tempted by other things. And we think if we just pretend to go through some of the motions, we just show up on church on Sundays, maybe then God will bless me and that's enough. And I just read my Bible today, now God's going to bless me, now I can go do whatever I want. Instead of now, we've got to submit to Him with everything, not just part of it. It's one of the ways we're tempted to twist God's Word. The second we find with the priest. And here, another temptation we have is that we seek significance among men instead of service to God. Our point number two is that we can seek significance among men instead of service to God. And this is the problem that the priest has. I mean, we look um, at his life throughout the story, we see somebody who has forgotten what it means to actually serve and obey God. And instead is interested in the trappings of the world. And we're introduced to the priest, he's wandering around looking for a home. Okay, he's not in Shiloh where the tabernacle is where the Ark of the Covenant is, where all of the other priests are. He's wandering looking for somewhere else to be. And this actually isn't bad. If you, you look, if you want to chase this on your own later, Deuteronomy 18 um, has some verses that talk about some commands for when priests do wander and go out to serve around the nation of Israel. But it says very clearly this is something that should be led by God. And you can wander and you can go, and then when you find a place that God wants you to be, that God leads you to, then you can stay there and you can serve. Now, instead, this priest happens to show up at Micah's house. We know isn't very godly, and he's got all sorts of idols. His shrine, his household gods, his ephod, all of these other things. And he's persuaded to come and be Micah's family priest. And he does that despite all of these idols. He should have known, right? Asking some questions. Well, okay, what's going on here? What do you want me to do? Oh, well, here, here's all my gods. I want you to be my priest. Help me worship them. It seems pretty clear if he knew his Bible, which he, maybe he knew some, maybe he didn't because there's so much sin in this book. Who knows at this point? But the priest should go, ah, no, I don't think actually I can be your priest. And in fact, you should be stoned to death because you're worshiping false gods. And that's what God's word says. And I'm a servant of God. And so that's now what we're going to do here. No, he says, yeah, great. You're paying me? Cool. Worship whatever gods you want. What are their names? Yeah, sounds awesome. That's what the priest does because he wants significance. That's kind of what he's chasing. He really doesn't even mind that one of his sons is ordained as a priest, which should be really offensive to him especially. This guy isn't a Levite. Why are you pretending he's a priest? Your son should be killed for being a false priest. Nope, he just goes along with it. Now, why does he do this? If he was a true priest, he would rebuke him. He would say no. And the, the reality is he was willing to ignore God's word if the pay was right. The priest was really willing to ignore and twist the scriptures and not really care about what God says as long as it was going to work out for him. As long as he could be somebody really important, as long as he had some nice pay and a cozy house and a cushy job and he could be in charge somewhere. That's what he wanted. And we see this happen repeatedly with him. The priest later refuses to rebuke the sin of the tribe of Dan. We'll talk more about their specific sin in a moment. But when they come to him in verse 5 and they say, Hey, inquire of us to God that we can know if this journey that we're going on will succeed. Say, so, hey, you know, we're, we're going out. We're trying to find some land. This is the place we're kind of thinking of. Hey, do you think God's going to be with us and give us this land? Okay, what the priest should have said is, No, God already told you some land that's yours. 
In fact, he gave it very specifically. Didn't you read Joshua? There's a whole bunch of chapters in there about all of the land. And you're in there. And it lists the cities. And these cities aren't on there. So you don't need to be sending out spies. You need to go back over there. God will not bless this. This is sinfulness. That's what the priest should have said. But yet, what does he say? He says, go in peace. Peace, peace. The journey which you are on is under the eye of God. He lies to him. And the prophets, especially Isaiah and Ezekiel, they will frequently rebuke the religious leaders and the priests in their day for this very thing. They will say, why are you telling people peace, peace, where there's no peace? Say, so why are you telling, blessing people's sinfulness when God says, no, that's not good? Why are you saying, yes, this is good, this is wonderful, you know, do what you want, God is with you. He blesses this, this is great. When God's word tells you, no, 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 this is not good, stop doing that. You need to repent. He overlooks their sin. Why? Because he wants to be approved of. And this is the temptation many leaders face. Right? Tempted to overlook the sin of the people around them. And I get that. I definitely get part of that, right? Because I don't know many preachers that really enjoy rebuking people and telling them how sinful they are. Okay, none of us really enjoy rebuking anybody. None of us definitely really enjoy being rebuked, if we're very honest. Because rebuking people and telling them how sinful they are isn't really a good way to get a lot of applause. Okay, you can get it if you rebuke other people who aren't in the room, especially if we don't like any of them anyway. We all really like that. But we don't like it so much when we're told about what's wrong with us. And yet that's what the priest does. He's happy to tell and, and overlook God's word and tell these guys that everything they're doing is good. Why? Because he wants significance. He has no problem lying and downplaying God's word because God's word might get in the way of his own rise. God's word might get in the way of him getting this steady paycheck from Micah. And so then later he gets his wish when the tribe of Dan comes and they take all the idols, they invite him to come with them. They give him promotion. In 1819, they say to him, hey, put a quiet your hand on your mouth. Come with us. Be our father. Be our priest. You know, or is it better for you to be a priest in the house of one man or to be the priest of a tribe and a clan of Israel? And his heart was glad. He gets promoted. And he's really excited about it. His gladness there reveals what he's really about. He's not interested in worshiping God. He's not interested in submitting to God and to God's word and helping people follow God. He's interested in what helps his own career and what helps him climb the ladder. It's interesting. It's one of the you know, early places in the Bible we see somebody you know, leaving a smaller place to go to a bigger place. It's not really a great thing. And all he's after is he's just after the significance of being important. And he takes idols with him. So it's not great. We'll go and we'll just worship God over there. This is a better, more healthy place. He also takes all of the idols that Micah has and so he can help them worship him. What are the consequences of this? Well, one of the consequences of this is that the tribe of Dan just continues headfirst into their sinfulness. Headfirst in it. And they, and they continue it for a lot of the rest of the book. And they don't have a moment where they can ever be gut-checked. There's not a moment where someone rebukes them and offers them a different path. There's not a moment where this priest could have said and stood in their path and said, guys, don't do this. I plead with you. Repent. Turn back to God. Don't take this land that you shouldn't. Come back and follow the Lord. Don't sin against God this way. Instead, they get a pat on the back and an encouragement and say, yeah, go in peace. And it sends them into further judgment. It sends them into further sinfulness that they'll have to answer, and they did answer to God for Another consequence is this Levite, he trains other priests to disobey God in the same way. In 1830, he says, His sons were priests to the tribe of Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. That's a long time. If you remember too, Judges is early 
in Israel's history. There aren't any kings yet. There are about to be a bunch of kings. So between now and all of 1 Samuel and all of 2 Samuel and all of 1 Kings and 2 Kings and 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles, this priest and his descendants are leading the tribe of Dan and others in Israel to worship idols until God kicks them out of the land. It is generation after generation after generation after generation after generation of sin and idol worship. And it started because this man didn't want to rebuke people and wasn't actually interested in serving to God. He just wanted to be really important. And however he got there was fine. He didn't care about the fallout or the consequences. And the consequences, again, are are grave. The, The priest's changing of God's word, it leads to idolatry for almost all of Israel's existence. And we see where this happens again in 31. In 1831, it tells us, and they set up Micah's carved image that he made. And it was there as long as the house of the Lord was in Shiloh. So the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant, the place where they should be worshiping is over there. It's at Shiloh. They should know where it is. That's where the the real priests should be. Judging what we know from the book of Judges, maybe they're not so great there either. And yet, the whole time they're setting up another house, a false tabernacle here where false priests could falsely worship God and that sin lasted for generations. This is why it's a big deal when spiritual leaders don't really care about worshiping God, don't really care about submitting to God, don't care about serving God, and just care about their own awesomeness, their own greatness, their own platforms, their own brands. It has long-term effects. It doesn't just affect people here. His sin affects the generations in Israel to come. And we get the identity of this priest finally at the end of the story, and it's quite a shock in verse 30. It tells us his name is Jonathan. The son of Gershom, the son of Moses. This is Moses' grandson who does this. That's part of why it doesn't tell us who it is in the beginning because it should be quite the shocking reveal of look at how quick things fall apart. It only took two generations after Moses for this to happen. It didn't take that long. Some of this maybe should... First off, it should remind us, and I've said this before, that God doesn't have any grandchildren. Ultimately, every single one of us has to decide, are we going to worship and serve God or not? Just because our parents were Christians, just because we grew up in church, just because our grandparents grew up in church, ultimately all of us, one day when we stand before the throne of God, we stand there alone. There's no one else there with us except for Jesus if we put our faith in Him. We have to decide if we're going to obey God or not. Maybe for some of you, um, if your grandchildren are not walking with the Lord, this might bring you some comfort. If Moses' grandchildren weren't either, they were doing some, he was doing some really awful stuff. So maybe you're not, not alone. But we see with Jesus, in contrast to this priest, which is also in contrast to this priest, you notice where is this priest from? He's from Bethlehem. What should you think of anytime you think of Bethlehem? Well, you should think of David, and then you should quickly think of Jesus. It's the place that he was born. And what tribe is he from? He's from Judah, weirdly enough. Well, who else is from, born in Bethlehem from Judah? Well, again, Jesus. But unlike this false priest, Jesus is a true priest and a better priest. That's part of why I called a worship was Jesus is the high priest who, though he's tempted in every way like us, he was tempted and offered all sorts of things all of the time. And yet, he turned all of them down. He was sinless. 
even when offered everything, even people, you can only imagine, we have, you know, Jesus being tempted in the, in the desert with the devil, but I can only imagine there were plenty of times he was tempted by other things at other times by people. And alone just losing his temper or his mind with his disciples who seemed to get everything wrong. And yet at every point, Jesus submitted. And Jesus wasn't interested in being significant among men. Jesus didn't come to build up the, the biggest building and the biggest show in town. Jesus was homeless. Jesus' ministry was supported mostly by believing or, or women who believed him and gave money and people who donated to him. For the most part, those three years, he just wandered around Israel. When he came in riding on that donkey, he had to borrow one. He didn't own it. Okay, he didn't go buy one either. Jesus wasn't interested in any of that stuff. What Jesus was interested in was serving God and preaching the gospel and calling us to repentance. All that other stuff wasn't as important. The final way we see in the tribe of Dan, one of the final ways that really were, were tempted, or we see this in Dan, where they wanted inheritance without obedience. And often we want inheritance without obedience. So all of chapter 18 really is kind of a strange parody of the beginning of Joshua. Um, you may have seen this already if you watch the sermon previews that I kind of uh, upload on Facebook uh, on Saturday or Friday. I, I mentioned this. And if you go back and you read um, Joshua 1 and 2, especially 2, there are a lot of similarities to this chapter here. I'm going to summarize it a, a little bit. So what we see in 18, in the beginning, in those days the tribe of the people lived and was seeking for, excuse me, an inheritance to dwell in. For until then, no inheritance among the tribes of Israel had fallen to them. So the tribe of Dan doesn't have any of their land. Right? The whole problem of the book of Judges, going all the way back to chapter 1, if you remember when we were there, is that they haven't conquered the land that God told them to. Or then even they kind of did half-heartedly. But Dan hasn't even done it a little bit. Dan has got zero land. They're just nomads wandering around back and forth. So when they're saying here, like, oh, nothing's fallen to us, you know, they haven't even tried. They're just saying, man, you know, like, God just didn't just hand it over to us. It just hasn't, just hasn't happened. I don't know why. I just can't imagine why this hasn't, you know, come. And well, the main, the reason it hasn't come is because they haven't been obedient. They haven't done what God asked them to do. So verse 2, the tribe, people of Dan, they send five able men from the number of their tribe from Zorda Ishtol to spy out the land. Go out and explore. So just like Joshua did, they send out their own spies. Instead of two, they're sending out five. But it's not to see the land that God has given to them. It's not to see the land that God told them, this is your land. It's to go look out elsewhere, to go outside of Israel, to go look at other land to see if they can find some other place. You can just imagine why they do that. Well, they probably didn't like the land that God had given them. Or maybe it was too hard. They wanted to go after somewhere else. God's already explicitly told them they don't need to send any spies. All they need to do is open up their Bibles and read, and yet they don't want to do that. They do what many of us do is when God says something that we don't like, we go somewhere else for a different answer. Well, I don't, I don't like what you said there, guys. So I'm going to go. I'm going I'm to find someone else. Maybe I'm going to find another preacher who tells me that what you said here actually isn't that, and it really means something else, because that's what I want it to mean. So let me see where I can find that. And so they do this, and it's kind of weird. These five spies, they stumble into the house of Micah, which is a parody of how the original two spies stumble into the house of Rahab. 
Now with Rahab, it's unusual. If you remember, she's a prostitute. They go into the house of a prostitute, and yet at this prostitute's house, they find a woman strong in faith, a foreigner professing faith and belief and hope in Yahweh. More orthodox faith than the spies had at that point. And so here they stumble into the house of Micah. He's a named, it's an Israelite. You think that's good? There's a Levite priest here. Surely this should be a place we should find good Orthodox faith. And yet it is atrocious. There are more idols than you can count. He, he stumbles into the house of an idolatry. And so later they find him and they ask this priest in five, Hey, is God pleased with us? Is this good? Is he going to bless our journey? Is he going to give us this inheritance? Because we don't want to obey and get it. We're trying to find a different inheritance so we can kind of get, you know, without doing what God wants. Is there a way we can get the blessings of God without submitting to him? That, that's really what we want to do. And they're asking a different priest. All right, if you notice, this is what they're doing. Well, the last priest we asked, he didn't like this. He, he said this was bad. So I'm going to go find another one. I'm going to keep asking priests until they tell me, yes, go in peace. This is what you want. Because when you're going out to look for answers, you're always going to find them. Right? In our information age with how much is on the internet and how many books and blogs and articles and whatever else there is, you are always going to find somebody somewhere who has the same opinion that you already had before you started looking. It's not that hard to find. And that's what many of us do. That's what many people now are tempted to do. Well, I don't like what this is, so I'm going to do some research, which means I'm just going to find, dig and look until I find somebody who agrees with what I already thought and just affirms me. Maybe they have another fact that I didn't have or something. That's so much of what we're tempted to do, even when it comes to God's Word. And that's what they do. Well, I don't like what this says. I don't like what God wants us to do. Surely He didn't mean that. He must have meant something other than what He said. So let's go see what we can find. And when, you find, when you're looking for sin, you're always going to find it. So the tribe goes, they find a place, it's outside of the land of Israel, it's somewhere that they shouldn't be, somewhere God hasn't, not just given to them, it's not Dan's, it's also not any of Israel's, and they see in seven, and the people here, how they lived, in security, after the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and unsuspecting. Lacking nothing is in the earth, possessing wealth. They were far from the Sidonians and didn't have any dealings with anyone. These people have all of the blessings that Dan would have if they would just be obedient. Is what it's trying to show us here. It's not just going on these lengthy descriptions of these just to make us feel bad for these people that they conquer. Though also we should. What it's trying to do is saying, hey look, here are these people that if Dan would just submit and obey, they could get this inheritance. But now they're trying to take it from someone else. They're trying to get this other inheritance because they don't want to actually obey. So the spies return, tell everyone in 18.9, Arise, let us go against them. Which arise is almost always used to be like, Hey, let's go. Let's go be obedient. Lift up. Let's do what God's called us to do. We've seen the land and it's very good. Which is ironic and sad to state because it's not good because it's been blessed by God. It's good land and it's not their land. And my favorite part is the next because it's so ironic of don't be slow to enter and possess this land. What do you mean don't be slow? All you've done is be slow. Been slow for generations, just slow in not doing what God has called you to do. But now all of a sudden it's convenient or it's easier or it's different or it's nice. Now you want to be really quick to obey God. Now that they got an answer that they like, they're going to do it. And you notice too, every time, in, not just in 18, but in both of these chapters, every time God's name is mentioned, it's being twisted. God's voice is absent. 
And it's not because he's not speaking to them. They don't know where else to go. All of these things that they do are explicitly told them not to do in God's word. He's already spoken. They don't need to listen to him again. They need to obey what he's already said. But they keep looking in other places. They're saying, look guys, God's blessing whatever you want to do here. And so they go and on their way there, they make sure that they can steal all of those idols from Micah. Because that's a good collection. So nice God, let's add them. And so they burn the city that's there. And 29 tells us they named the city Dan. After Dan, their ancestor, who was born in Israel. But the name of the city was Laish at first. God wants us to know that they can call that city whatever they want. But it's not really Dan and it's not really Israel and it's not really theirs. God recognizes that it's not their inheritance. Tribe of Dan, they didn't like what God's word said. They didn't like what the inheritance was going to be. So they went to find something else without obeying. And I think that the way that this chapter is written and trying to unfold and why it's kind of compared to Joshua and the way that it's deliberately doing that is it's trying to show us that they're trying to rewrite God's word. They're trying to recreate their own story, not doing what God has asked them to do, but doing their own thing. And this is what so many still are tempted to do today when they don't like what God's word says, when it tells them, no, you shouldn't do that. When it tells them, yes, you should do this, we change it. There's something pricks our conscience that makes us uncomfortable. We just run somewhere else so we can make that pain go away instead of being obedient, instead of listening. The problem is that all of these different ways of twisting God's word, they lead us further and further from God. And they lead us further and further from the gospel. The good news of Jesus is that he has spoken. His word's right here. We can know exactly what God has to say about so much about everything that we need. It's sufficient for everything pertaining to, to life and to godliness. We can hold it in our hands. We can read it. And yes, like some passages are harder to understand than others. Like this one is a good example of that. It's a hard passage to wrestle with. This whole book is tough to grasp. But when, especially when God's word is difficult, we have choices. We can say, well, I can try and submit to God's word or I can ignore it, can twist it, can change it, can go do something else. But this is the only book in which we're going to find Jesus. This is the only book in which we'll find the truth. And when we twist and distort God's word, what we do is we twist and we distort Jesus. We don't get the Jesus as he's revealed in the Bible anymore. We get a Jesus who looks a lot like us. Or a Jesus who looks a lot more like we want him to look. You can find a bunch of people who, who like Jesus, might even profess faith in Jesus, or say they're a big fan of Jesus, but you know, a particular kind of Jesus. A Jesus who agrees with everything that they think already. A Jesus who loves them in the way that they want to be loved. A Jesus who doesn't give any commands that they don't like. And when we twist and we manipulate and we're motivated by these different things to change God's word, what we do is we lose Jesus. And we don't need a Jesus who looks like you or me. We need Jesus as he is. We need the God who is revealed in scripture. We need the truth. We don't need a version that makes us comfortable. We need the Jesus who came down to earth to die on the cross for sinners like you and me. Who came to die for sinners like Micah. Who came and offered the invitation for even evil men like Moses' grandson. A, a God who shows mercy and grace even to those who don't deserve it. Like everybody in this chapter. Everybody in this chapter should be stoned and, and killed for their disobedience to God. And yet they're not. And the fact that they're not is a mercy from God. It's His grace. 
We need that Jesus. The Jesus who has mercy and grace for sinners like you and, and me, and yet he doesn't affirm it and say, it's great, it's good, go do whatever you want, keep sinning all that you want, who invites us to a different way, who offers us salvation and a new life, who can take our heart of stone and, and change us so that we can be born again. That's the Jesus that we need who invites us to turn to His Word and submit and to follow Him. When we twist God's Word, we end up in very dangerous places. So this morning, we've just looked at these three characters. We've seen Micah. We've seen his desire there. He just wants success without submitting to God. We've seen the Levite. He just wants to be significant among people, and he is interested in serving God. And we've seen how the tribe of Dan, they want the inheritance, all the blessings of God without any of the obedience. And so the question for us, we all have to be honest and ask ourselves, is are we going to twist God's word? Or are we going to submit to it? Are we going to ignore it? Or are we going to obey it? Because if we twist it, if we change it, what we end up doing is we end up missing Jesus. And he's what we need more than anything else. Let's bow our heads and pray, and I'll invite our worship team to, to come up. Lord, I just ask that you would be with us. Lord, I thank you for the gift of your word that you have given to us. Lord, I thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit that you've given to help us understand your word. Um, God, I pray that you would be gracious to us even more, Lord, that you would uh, draw us to yourself, God, that you would help us to have an even greater appreciation for the salvation and the gospel that you have given us. Lord, would we be a people who do not twist your word but submit to it? Would we be a people who don't just want to, who don't just pretend to follow you, but who actually obey you? And we know and acknowledge that we can only do that if you help us. So would you? And we pray this in your holy and your precious name. Amen. Don't you stand as we continue to worship our Savior through song. I, I hope when the role is called up yonder that you all will be there. And if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, I implore you to do so. I want to ask before I read our benediction in Hebrews, I want to ask that you would pray for me this week. Um, next week, we are going to hit the hardest chapter in the book of Judges. Um, and it's probably one of the hardest chapters to preach in the Bible. If you wonder why I say that, just take a look at it and then you'll understand. Um, and then pray for me, please, um, so that um, we can hear what it is that God has to teach us. Here our benediction from Hebrews 13. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace.